I'm Sam Bompus, and you're listening to Thought Starters. We're recording live from the pod, White City Place's very own recording studio. If you're listening to Thought Starters, simply hit subscribe and catch more episodes from my co-hosts, Liv Siddle, Emma Hote Almud, and Kemi Olivia. It's my great pleasure to interview one of my favourite artists, Lucy McRae, who describes herself as a science fiction artist and body architect. Over the various lockdowns, I actually had the great pleasure of being able to visit digitally one of her exhibitions. And her work is provocative. It looks kind of a mixture of institutional with uh, disgust, the visceral slimes, you know, almost of a, a, a fetishistic uh, technologies. And she uses that to provoke ideas around um, ethics, bioscience, culture, emotional impact, uh, the way that science impacts us all. So I started off by asking Lucy, what is a body architect and what is art in the realm of science fiction? Bluntly, a body architect was a fabricated job title that was made up for me over 15 years ago to get a job that I wasn't qualified for. The job was to develop uh, wearable technology for 15 to 20 years out at a company called Philips, the consumer electronics company in 2006. And this job title allowed me to bring together classical ballet, architecture, fashion, graphics, and, uh, you know, a hybrid background that up until that point didn't have a job title. So as a body architect, it allows me to explore any realm without any label or preconception because the label is an invention which allows me to explore whatever I want. And I was, I was going to ask, does, do you mind if there is a label at all or is it helpful for your practice? Who's, who's the label helpful for? I think the label, I've always wide birthed labels. I remember um, a moment in time when I was called an artist and it put the fear in me because it, it made me um, question, wow, what do I have to do now that I'm an artist can I, can I put that expectation on top of what I'm about to do? So the label, the, the fabrication was a way for me avoiding labels and in the end I've created my own label. Have, have you found, uh, have you met other people who now call themselves body artists and you're like body architects and you're like, hey, hang on, that's a made up thing. Yeah, I love it. People write to me and they're like, I'm also a body architect and it's, uh, it's amazing how it's become its own genre. There's been a book published around it. I had a solo show in Australia called Body Architect. Um, for me, it is we are in a world where we are required to redefine and set new tones and textures. And so Body Architect, I guess, is in that spirit of redefinition. And um, I guess one of the things that I'm interested in in terms of that is you know, with an artist quite often, with an artist, people are interested in their interpretation of the world. And I think, you know, maybe for me, that's why I would be nervous about being described as an artist. Um, what do you want people that come to your work to to, to, to feel or how, how to apprehend it? 
I definitely want people to be able to familiarise themselves with what I'm making. I, I It can be alienating because of the topics, but I, I use materials that I hope are familiar and I feel like my role is as an artist is an interpreter to pick up on weak signals at the edges of culture and bring them to a physical space, be it film, photography, edible technology, artificial intelligence, where the goal is for whoever is looking at the art to ask questions. It's certainly not about problem solving. The most important thing is to hit science at street level and to have people ask their own questions. And a lot of the time when you combine creativity, science, art, technology, dance, theatre, you're going to be coming out with questions that science alone wouldn't ask. So when when you're creating these provocations, have, have you seen some of your work spin off into science or create eddies or ripples in culture? Mm. Um, how, I, I wonder if there are some examples of, of, of that. Yes. I would say a good a good project to talk to that is Swallowable Perfume. Mm-hmm. In 2011, I created a cosmetic pill that you eat and when you sweat, you sweat a biologically enhanced fragrance. And if you impregnate that pill with colour, you sweat cosmetics. And at the time in 2011, the beauty industry alone in the US was worth $465 billion and it had never been disrupted by science or tech. And so as a result of that, I got hefty PowerPoint presentations from executives at pharmaceutical companies saying we want to be the first to uh, bring this product to our country Um, you know, let's partner. And so this does not exist. It's it's a 10-year anniversary this year. Swallable perfume remains a concept. However, the ripple effects are that a very big beauty company set up a new laboratory exploring swallowable technology in Europe Um, and... It is hard to measure the outcomes or the effects of how art influences culture, especially when it could be just inspiring a kid in a suburb to take a university course and end up doing something that could change the world. It's very hard to measure that. I mean, this this sort of leads me on. I want to understand where you go for personally for your your inspiration. I mean, as soon as I'm I'm imagining all the dripping sweat of the hyperhidrosis, is that it? And yeah. and yes, you know, suddenly it becomes evocative and exciting. And you know, I don't know how sweat glands work, but where where <laughs> where where do you where do you look to for your inspiration? Yeah, well, I mean, talking about sweat glands. <laughs> The research that I did is that our body odour is the smell of our immune system oxidising through the surface of our skin. Um, So that's, I guess, 
rather exciting for me. My inspiration is personal. Making art is personal. Swalbel Perfume came from a frustration of leaving a job where I was a body architect after four years working in wearable tech and nobody knew what to do with me. And so I created a campaign that showed the world this is what I do, this is how I make. And so whether it is a conversation um, on a bus randomly at a time when I am searching for some answers, be it how will life exist beyond Earth when our body is not designed to exist in the permanent rigours of zero gravity, and then I meet somebody who turns around and tells me NASA are concerned with the complications of growing a fetus in zero gravity, and suddenly, like a, an explosion in reverse, these pieces that I was searching for, the frustrations that I was feeling, and this sense of um, somewhat feeling misunderstood in the world. I think I have am learning <laughs> to feel okay with feeling misunderstood as an artist. And so when that moment in time aligns, be it through a conversation, an article, um, an experimentation that I'm doing at home, then this kernel of an idea starts and from there the project builds. And so you're sort of referencing then the move away from Phillips' body artist uh, architect to your own practice as well. What was that that journey like? And was there sort of a, a moment that crystallised when you realised, like, I'm doing this thing, it's totally outside the borders of other people's comprehension, but um, mm. this is what I can spend my life doing? What's interesting and, and just popped into my head is that the unknown is so risky and so scary and we're out of our comfort zone and if you imagine a gymnast letting go of one parallel bar and jumping for another one, there's that moment where you're not holding on to anything <laughs> and you might fall um, or you might not catch where you're going. And I think that that is not a click of your fingers and you know where you're going next. I had an identity crisis. I didn't know what I was doing. And so when you are in that moment of unknown, for me, the way that I get myself out is to experiment with the stuff that I'm interested in at the time without knowing where it's going to go. And that's what I did. I left Philips. I started working in film and spraying my roommate with food dye where she was wearing cotton buds on her body and I was imagining um, are we able to blur the edges of the body and I made these experiments and they were put in front of Robin, the Swedish pop star, and suddenly then Robin became my first client. I moved into music video and album covers. And so that is an example of just, you know, trusting in the unknown and also knowing that that is where the best stuff happens, even if it's so uncomfortable. But I, I, I was going to say... Um, you know, is there is there sort of an element of chaos in your work? Um, how can you harness chaos creatively? Mm. Mm. Good question. I, I'm a visiting professor at SIARC, the architecture school here in downtown LA, and I taught a class called Captaining Uncertainty. And chaos 
in my work, I would say, is rendering in the background the entire time, um, which brings about a certain kind of energy and drive and motivates me to get closer to resolving the experiment. If there is no chaos, I don't believe that we can create anything new. We can't build new aesthetics. We can't innovate. And when I start a project, whoever is in the project, be it a client, a commissioner, um, you know, team members, we all agree that through risk, we innovate. And I quite, I quite like the chaos of other people as well. So when you, when you push materials out into the world, uh, the echoes you get back from it, um, which are often unintentional, but take you into odd directions. Mm, I like that. I think sometimes when I put out a project, when others talk about it, I didn't see it like that. And so I learn even more what I'm doing through how other people see it. And that's always a great surprise. And and also a lot of criticism when you're provocative, a lot of people disagree with what you're doing. And so it isn't always accepted in the world. I'm Sam Bompas and you're listening to Thought Starters. So a lot of your work is aesthetically very, very provocative um, and it quite often has an ethical component or an ethical uh, intent or provocation. Should people be provoked? How do you want them to be provoked? How do you want this, how do you want visitors to feel? I, I think now that the speed at which science and technology is evolving and changing and mutating, it is a non-negotiable for us to not be having conversations about the ethics of editing an embryo from scratch. And so I see my work as an opportunity and platform to have difficult conversations about complex things, but hopefully be it in a gallery setting or with a brand using the superhighways of fashion, art, film, entertainment, storytelling to have a conversation around this and to open it up to the, the masses, to the larger population. And, and I'm also super curious in Generation Z. They are the biggest population right now, superseding baby boomers and millennials, ages 8 to 23, I think it is. And I feel like at the moment we are, that the way that they see the world is going to be so important as to how we move forward. And do, you, do you feel like there's been uh, an acceleration in terms of those ethics conversations as uh, in alongside the acceleration of uh, technological and communication around the world? I mean, if it, like, I feel like I'm living in science fiction every day now. Uh, in terms of the breakthroughs in science that are so outside the borders of, of legislation that legislation doesn't even exist or is catch is playing catch up with what what is what is possible um, mm. how does that impact on your creative process I, I I was concerned maybe three years ago um, when CRISPR technology was not even on 
any kind of government policy anywhere in the world. And yet uh, a Chinese researcher edited the embryos of, of twins and, and they are now uh, have the, the genetic uh, resilience to AIDS and this was an illegal experimentation. And so I don't know the interface between startup science, startup tech experimentation and running alongside of that, the ethics, because the ethics is a discussion that should not be decided by just those who have invented the technology. And so there is a lag. There's a big ethical lag. And also to have a global discussion about that takes a lot of time and organisation. So I think that the indispensable force of art, entertainment with science and tech, in a way, it's one of its main purposes is to have an ethical discussion. And we've learned in the last 18 months, we adapt, we submit, we stand six feet apart and we, you know, <laughs> don't sneeze in people's faces. And we did that like very, very quickly. So in a way, it was a very good test to see how quickly we fall in line. Mm. And that's quite scary as well when you could play out and speculate other ways that we may be told in, in overnight how to fall in line. And, and obviously the last year has had a terrific impact on, on um, you know, many people in many different ways. How has it imp- impacted you and, and, and how does that pull through to the work that you're making? Mm. Uh, for seven years I've been exploring the themes of touch and isolation and so March 13 when Mother Nature sent us back to our rooms to have a good hard look at ourselves I like everybody was in shock but I had an identity crisis and suddenly my research was a reality it was no longer a near future speculation and that was really difficult for me because I I thought so what do I do now Um, and so it took a couple of months and what I did was just make I made a lot I made um, a a project for a museum in Amsterdam next museum um, with a researcher in Australia and and looked at domesticating artificial intelligence and creating soft and squishy um, opportunities to have a discussion around how AI is monitoring us the whole time Um, I created the solitary survival raft which is now exhibiting in Eindhoven at Mu that was questioning the universal sense of fear and when we get to the horizon line do we just drop off and how could we uh, manage um, what what tools or machines would we need to manage fear could we create machines that hug us that um, deal with cultivating our vulnerabilities and then um, this month showing heavy duty love which is a very large manual machine at venice biennale looking at um, specifically this is a future where we have been born in a post crispr technology where we have been edited and grown from scratch no longer grown from the body but in simple terms, grown in a lab in a Petri dish? And would we need new apparatus 
and machines for uh, experiencing intimacy. Touch is the first sense that's developed in the womb. If we're not receiving that squeeze of the womb or the hug of a mother, then does touch develop later in life? And so heavy-duty love is made for these future-sensitive humans, which is a, um, a, a concept that I am building upon. Um, and, and what's interesting in, with my work that what I make in the near future can all be applied now. The pan pandemic hit, we received a crisis of touch. I make machines that hug us. Um, I believe that neurobiological quirks like dyslexia, um, ADHD, Asperger's, hypersensitivity are, I don't want, I don't want to say superpowers, but they, for a long time, they are, they have been deemed taboos or weaknesses. And as science is on this mission to edit out human weakness, we need to <laughs> come to terms with actually weaknesses are the things that make us human and if we remove these weaknesses, then I think we are removing very um, wise, shamanic, powerful um, quirks that I believe um, these sensitivities are the things that can um, be woven into how we move forward in the future. And do, you, do you feel as well, because you're operating in this this near future you're responding to um a lot of the the topics that that and crystallizing a lot of the topics that were focused on today like i'm thinking about your institute of isolation <laughs> project which feels like quite a lot of people have had a visceral experience of now that the way they perhaps wouldn't have a year ago um do you think that makes you personally more sensitive or desensitized to um some of the issues are you blase about it or are you uh triggered as you encounter it in in normal life full transparency i was so unprepared <laughs> to live in isolation I, when it first happened i was like i've got this i've i've created institute of isolation i make artworks that are all about touch and isolation um and i wasn't prepared at all um, in a way, we attract the things that are underdeveloped in us, that we're curious about, that we're searching about, that we want to evolve in. And so for whatever reason, these are the themes that I'm interested in at the moment. And for me, science is a way of understanding myself. And that perhaps is why I, my dad's... Um, a math teacher, so there's also that element of, of um, understanding the world through through the realms of, of maths. But science is is a backbone to everything that I'm exploring. I had one question in terms of my personal interest. What are you excited about right now? Surfing. Surf. <laughs> <laughs> um, is my first answer. Um, I am making film, making film in, you know, when Hollywood is on the doorstep. That's exciting to me. And why does Hollywood on the doorstep matter? Because I believe that 
a lot of disruption and redefinition needs to happen there. The concept of the hero's journey and the equation of writing stories and scripts. And as someone who likes to disrupt markets and throw uh, a spanner in the works, that, you know, bringing in new points of view, which is already happening. Um, and I think that the, sometimes the chaos of making feels like I'm swimming upstream and people don't understand and then suddenly uh, within the crowds of uh, this making you get someone who also resonates with we can't tell another story like that and so it legitimizes the the upstream swimming that I've been doing for so long and the way that I make film is not traditional at all at all it's it's very very different and strange and so I continue to do it because I believe that there's value there and and that element of of disruption seems timely Lucy how should how should people find you um, I'm on Instagram at Lucy McRae and my website, lucymcrae.net. And thank you. Thank you very, very much for uh, today. It's, it's, I, could, I think I could go on speaking forever. Um, is there a final thought that, that, that you have? There is real beauty in, in the unknown and being out of your comfort zone. So, so go there. Thank you very, very much, Lucy. Have a marvellous rest of your day and, um, yeah, disrupting Hollywood. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on modern-day culture from White City Place, West London's creative campus. Join our growing community by following at White City Place across Instagram, Facebook and more.